I was looking for something just the other day in an old Bible that I had, and I came across the lyric sheet to a song we used to sing numerous years ago. But I felt like the message felt so appropriate for the situation that many of us are finding ourselves in right now. I remember when we learned this song. It was also a time of great trial, great testing, many battles, and it's just a very simple gospel song. And the title of it is what caught me, No Cross, No Crown. That was the reminder of it. And it, it, the basic message of it is, if you can't stand a little disappointment, a little ridicule, gossip, when loved ones turned around, even a little failure sometimes, even when you're trying, well then just remember, no cross, no crown. And I'll tell you, I, I thought what an opposite message that this is, and this we know this accords with the message of the Bible, but what an opposite message that this, this is, where we live in a world now that we're told that if anything happens, if there's adversity that you face in your life, afflictions, if there's battles, if there's trials, disappointment, even if someone betrays you, anything like that, that must mean that this is something bad, that you're on the wrong path. That's the voice that tends to come out. And when I, when I read this, I felt reminded and encouraged again that without us picking up our cross daily and following him, there's no reward at the end, that this is the right path. This was stuck into my Bible, this, an old Bible, into this passage right here. This is in Psalms 119. And it says, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. And starting in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me. But I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their hearts are calloused and unfeeling. But I delight in your law. It seems here that the affliction that the psalmist was talking about, the discipline, the humbling, whatever he was going through in his life, he doesn't view this as being on the wrong path. In fact, he says if he did not have this in his life, Amen. and when he didn't, he was going astray. Amen. And the proud that were forging a lie, it didn't seem that what he was feeling was bad. Actually, what leads to callousness, what leads to unfeeling, is when we try to go through life avoiding all battles, all difficulties, all entanglements, and try to make it as easy as we can upon ourselves. And I'll tell you, I felt the Lord encouraging me and how he, he says in verse 71, it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth or your instructions are better to me than thousands of coins of gold or silver. What an incredible perspective that we can remember during times of battle and difficulty. And I wanted to read you one other passage of scripture that I shared with someone else this week that I feel like is in accordance with this message in the Psalms. And it's Paul in Philippians. It's just two verses. And he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and I see you, or I'm absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he begins in verse 28. I'm going to read it in a little bit of a different translation. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. For although your loyalty to the faith 
is proof to them that you'll perish. It's in fact proof to you that you'll be saved by God. Amen. Here's one other slightly different translation. For although your opponents and your adversaries see your loyalty to the truth as inevitably leading to your persecution and death, you see it as leading through persecution to the salvation of your souls. Amen. And I'll tell you, when that came up inside of me, it gave me just a renewed sense of how we should look at our adversaries, how we should look at adversity, difficulties, trials in our lives, that actually it's our light and momentary afflictions that are working in us a far more eternal and exceeding weight and glory. That we should not despise the disciplines, the discipline of the Lord. We should not despise when difficult things arise in our lives. In fact, we should not be terrified by them in any way. Instead, we should know that this is proof that we're on the right road. That God is leading us forward. He can show us anything He wants to show us, deal with us, change us in any way He wants to. But we're not getting off that path. We're not straying from this. And instead, we're going to do what He says in verse 27. That we'll stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the faith that I feel. That's the unity that I feel when Brother Eddie said that we're separated by many miles. We can't see everyone's faces. This is the faith that I feel rising up in my heart. And it feels good to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I anticipate all that God has ahead. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, Nathan was talking, I thought, earlier today about how every good song that's ever moved you, every story that you've read that's impacted you and given you hope is seeing somebody else reach a crisis point in their life and somehow God miraculously bringing them through it. And if you're in a crisis and a trial and a struggle of any kind, let God make your life a testimony of what His love and His power can do. And this might just be that point in your life that makes your story everything that it can be and mean to others. And hold on. Amen. <laughs> God's going to bring you through. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, He's not dependent on others to redeem and bring meaning out of crises or situations. People can make a mess of things. People can make terrible mistakes. The devil can even get involved and totally ruin something. But God can still redeem it if we will surrender it to His hands. I've shared recently or over the past several years about the story of uh, Paul when he was in Roman custody and he had appealed to Caesar. And there was some dispute about whether he should get on a ship that was bound across the bay. And Paul said he was warned by God in a dream that they should not get on the ship. And the centurion seemed like he believed Paul, but the captain was too big for his britches and too confident in himself, and he wouldn't believe Paul. And so they set sail stubbornly, and they were swept right into a terrible storm, what the Bible calls a Eurachlodon. And as the storm is beating them to pieces, literally, the Lord speaks to Paul and says something remarkable. Tell them not to leave the ship. Now, he originally said, don't get on the ship. Now he's saying, don't leave the ship. And this really is a remarkable thing because for people who live by principles, you know, it makes no sense. But God is willing to hijack even our disasters, even our disobedience, even our total messes, if we'll just let Him be king, if we'll let Him take control. 
and uh, you know the sailors were going to try to spear it away in the lifeboats and so Paul told them and they cut all the lifeboats off and they really canceled every option except obedience to Christ and in the end they all made it alive and the ship was beat to pieces but their obedience was tested because they all came in floating on the wreckage of the ship they didn't abandon the ship and I just I feel like no matter the circumstance no matter the failure you know when we face tragedy it's natural to ask questions I cannot think of a tragedy that I've ever been part of where questions didn't just come and come and come and come and some of those questions can be helpful meaningful but in the end we've got to decide is this going to be meaningless is this going to be a total waste or is there any good that can come out of this can I make any change in my life for the positive for the good that would redeem a crisis like this and when you do that you disappoint the devil you just put a sad scowl on the face of, of the king of terror and misery and you let God start to redeem and turn something around and you know there are situations in the Bible that can only be described as epic failures disasters things that shouldn't have happened and so on and so forth and yet sometimes you look at the outcome you look at the net result in the life of King David and you see that God used it for good God didn't want it God didn't plan it he didn't send it but he used it when David was willing to say okay here's my mess but I'll start obeying now I'll surrender now and I thought of um, you know just some of the challenges that we go through as a community and as a people who are trying to come out of the world and you know the Bible gives us some very clear inviolable uh, principles that will never break that you just there's nothing but death on the other side of them if you break them but by and large we're not called to live our lives by principle we're asked to live our lives by relationship with God through the Spirit and the thing is is a relationship with God is a hard thing to maintain it requires ongoing humility it requires asking seeking knocking it requires faith it requires a fight to keep faith alive and so human nature is always trying to convert the tenuous fragile relationship of salvation into a list of principles that the flesh can easily execute on its own strength and this is how we get the ancient faith of Judaism turning into rabbinicism the rabbinical Judaism and Hellenization of Judaism this is how the church went from first century apostolic power to by by the time of Augustine of Hippo no gifts of the Spirit no supernatural power and finally the Catholic Church because people people don't like how taxing it is on the flesh to walk by faith to listen for God to feel like everything isn't in the bag and we really have to hear his voice in order to walk forward or go this way or that 
And so we're always trying to convert things to principles, principles that we can trust in, principles that we can rely upon. And if we ever do that, then we turn our faith into an idol because we turn our relationship into a man-constructed thing that we then worship and submit to. But it's self-imposed religion. It's will worship. It's not walking by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's saying, we have the scriptures and we'll search them to find life. But Jesus says, you're not going to find it there because you won't turn to me. You won't turn to that relationship. And I think of examples throughout the Bible where it almost seems that God contradicts himself. But in frankness, he does not contradict himself. It's just that sometimes he's telling you to do one thing today and he's telling you to do something else tomorrow. It's not that he's changing, it's that you need to change. At one point, one thing is acceptable and at another point, something else is required. And, you know, you look at Acts 17 and he says, the past times of ignorance God once winked at. He once overlooked, but now he calls all men to repentance. And we cannot ignore the fact that what was required in the days of David, King David, was not good enough in the days of Jesus and the apostles. They had to move past that. And if we're on a progression of obedience, then we'll see the Lord doing this from time to time. And even geographically or our situation in life, we can see the Lord calling his people out of Egypt. And Egypt is like this motif of the world throughout the Bible. Come out of her, don't go there, don't go down to Egypt. And yet then we see Jacob, after he has left his father's house, after he has received the birthright by manipulation, after he has toiled for Laban for 20-something years, and after he has wrestled with the angel and received a name change, he finds himself in the land of promise. He finds himself in Canaan, and there he dwells in tents with his sons. Now, there are only 11 at this point because Joseph, to him, has died, even though he doesn't know Joseph is in Egypt. And then the Lord allows a famine to come. And this famine is intended by God to squeeze Jacob out of the complacency of his principles, of his self-made religion, of his self-made world. This is a man of suffering. This is a man of losses, of pain. But there's some kind of complacency. And if he's going to remain Israel, meaning one who perseveres with God, then here comes this famine. And he looks at this famine from the side of its affliction. But God looks at the famine from the side of a reunion coming in Egypt with a son who he thought was dead. And Jacob looks at this famine and he's bitter at it. He does not want to send his sons to Egypt to inquire about bread there in this land of debauchery that is rejected by God. But finally, they're squeezed and they're squeezed and they're squeezed. God cares more about your obedience than your principles. And so finally he says, okay, go. And his sons go and, and they come back and they have a little bit, but it's not enough. And they meet this man. They don't understand. But the man says, you got to bring Benjamin back. And the Lord is putting Jacob through that 
crucible of surrender that Isaac came to when he trembled and knew that he had given the blessing to the wrong son, according to his thinking. The same surrender Abraham had come to when he put Isaac on the altar and raised his knife to slay the source of all of his hope and future and promise. The enemy had already taken Joseph from Jacob, but Jacob hadn't surrendered Joseph. It was unwillingly stolen from Jacob. Amen. And so now the Lord is giving Jacob a choice. Either you're going to live by faith and you're going to put your, your only begotten son, so to speak, on the altar, your only remaining son of love, son of my right hand, Benjamin, on the altar, or you're going to die. And you're all going to die through your principles. Amen. And that's the kind of self-righteous stubbornness that so many Christians live in. This is what I believe and I'm not budging. Really? Did God speak it to you from Sinai? Did God tell you that? Did God really confirm that to you? It may be His will. Canaan may be part of His plan. But today, right now, while your stomach is growling, He may be calling you to get off your seat and go to Egypt to find bread. Not to humiliate you and make you feel like a sellout, but He may be calling you to Egypt because there's a reunion of promise and life waiting for you. Jacob doesn't want to do it. And he waits until the bitter end. And you can just see the grace of God wondering, is this man going to actually die before he questions his principles? Is this man actually going to let the whole promise die on the altar of his pride? Amen. And we're told in the Bible that Jacob comes to the doorway of his tent. And he peers out and he says... All these things are against me. My days have been few and full of trouble. And he sets off to Egypt. He doesn't go himself yet, but he releases Benjamin. And you can just feel this last little tantrum, this last little bitterness. I wish my life hadn't gone this way. If God wanted something from me, I wish I could have given it on my terms. Amen. But that's not faith. That's not surrender. And that doesn't release grace. And so he waits there in his tent, probably brewing, probably sulking, probably feeling like he was cornered. Amen. And meanwhile, the donkeys are trotting off to Egypt. Amen. And a beautiful moment is getting ready to unfold where a resurrection is going to take place that is a prototype of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it would have never happened. All of you who hide behind your principles, you listen, it would have never happened. It would have never happened if someone hadn't been willing to say, God, I'm going to die in my principles. I think I better step out in faith instead. It wasn't surrender to the devil. It wasn't capitulation to the enemy. Sure, Egypt was the enemy, but he didn't release Benjamin in surrender to the enemy. In surrender to Egypt, he released him in surrender to God. And there he waits in his tents. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't drop off an email real quick. Simeon, go let dad know that Joseph is alive. There was no news line that came across the airwaves. So he must have waited, I don't know, weeks. And finally, the servant must have come and told him, a dust from a camel train is approaching. <laughs> and he must have gone out there, all the doubts in his head telling him, 
that surely Benjamin would be dead or gone, you know. But then he's looking. Amen. And he's there. And they come back and they tell him, not only is Benjamin alive, but a resurrection has taken place. That which you thought you had lost and would never see or touch again has also come back to life. And he would have never known it if he had just been a good, stubborn Christian living by his principles. Amen. God knows he honors the man who is willing to die for his convictions. But you had better be sure that those convictions are based on the Word of God and not your stubborn conclusions about what his will is. Amen. God has more for us than our principles can afford us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just say this. We are in a trial. Everybody knows that. We've never been so bombarded by the enemy. But I don't want to die in my tents simply because I didn't obey God when he would have prompted me earlier on to go on ahead and go to Egypt and obey his voice and get some corn and a whole lot more. Get the fruit of obedience. Get the fruit of faith. Get resurrection, which is the fruit of both. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The enemy is mad at us because he senses that his time is short. In Revelations 12, verse 11, it says, God's people overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And because they did not love their lives so much as to shy away from death. Therefore, rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. With great fury the devil has come down to you, knowing he has only a little bit of time. So in this scripture we're told that heaven's overcomers got there in three powerful expressions of God's grace. The blood of the Lamb. Amen. That absolves us of our guilt apart from which we'd go to hell. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. The second powerful dispensation of grace came to these overcomers when they gave testimony. When they spoke with their mouths and God listened. When they spoke with one another and a book of remembrance was written. Amen. When they stood in meetings or grabbed a brother by the sleeve along the way and said, God has changed me and I'm not going back. I have committed my course and I'm going all the way. Testimony is powerful. It declares, it puts into words the feelings that God plants in the heart. And when they become words, then there's something to stand by. And when you share them with others, then you can be held accountable. And a brother will say, remember what God spoke to you. Remember what you said in that meeting. Don't go back on it. So testimony is a powerful tool for getting to heaven. And those who are in heaven overcame in three ways, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they didn't love their natural lives. They were not so invested in self that they would shrink from doing God's will if it risked their skin. That's repentance. When you decide not to love yourself so much as to shrink from death, but instead you say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
And he says that as a result, therefore, rejoice, O heavens. Because of these three things, thousands upon ten thousands have made it to heaven. Amen? Amen. Innumerable crowds of overcomers are in the bleachers of heaven, clapping and cheering for everybody who would let the blood of Jesus and the word of testimony, amen, and the, the cross that, that doesn't prize the flesh more than God's will. They're clapping for you if that's going to become your power. He says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But, for those who got to heaven, whoo, you did it. But, woe to those who are on the earth. Because the devil's wrath is great, because he knows his time is short. And what this tells us is that the devil gets really mad when he's about to lose. I'm sorry, that's what it means. I mean, he's got an expiration date coming. When his power's going to fizzle like a weak bottle of soda, and he's not going to be able to do anything. All tears are going to be wiped away. There will not even be any sighing. Nobody's going to go, anymore. And the devil lives by this stuff. He lives by every sigh. He lives off of every tear that comes from our eye, by the wailing and the broken hearts that he creates. But that soda pop is going to fizzle one last time very soon, and it's going to be over. And the closer we get to that seminal defeat of the king of terror, the more quick he's going to get to make a lot of messes for us. He's going to work on our minds. He's going to work on our children. He's going to try to infiltrate the kingdom with the world. He's going to work on our bodies. He's going to throw COVID at us and cancer at us. And he's going to do all kinds of things. Amen. But we're going to endure because Jesus said, he who endures to the end, the same will be saved. And we're going to remember that when he gets real hot, that when he gets really intense, that it's a sure sign that he's about to expire. How many of you have read stories of those suffering during World War II in Paris and in Holland and in various places that were under the Axis powers? I remember reading stories about mothers telling their children when bombs were falling and the war was heating up and the city was burning all around them. They said that they could not suppress their joy because they knew that the intensity of the war meant that the enemy was about to lose. <laughs> I want to tell each and every one of you, if the war's heating up, it's because our allied kingdom powers are getting close to a decisive victory. And the devil knows it. He's extra mad because he's got only a little bit of time which means if you'll hang on, if you'll endure, you're going to outlast him. I want to read a quote to you from Eschilus, who lived 500 years before Christ. This made me think of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, where he says, Wisdom is in the house of mourning. We learn more through the things we go through, the suffering, than through the joys that we beg for and we thank God for. So here's what Eschilus said 500 years before Christ. He says, He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget, falls drop by drop 
upon the heart until in our own despair, sometimes against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. The wisdom that came to Jacob came against his will, drop by drop, and it was an awful grace, but it was a grace nonetheless. Whatever pain you're going through, it's working something that nobody, not the devil and not death, can ever steal from you. I looked up this quote from Markham before I came today, and I'll close with this. Defeat may serve us as well as victory to shake out the soul and let the glory in. When the great oak is straining in the wind, the boughs drink in new beauty and the trunk sends down a deeper root on the windward side. Only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture. Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. I want to encourage you that this is a time to live by relationship and not by principles. This is a time to humble ourselves and live by faith, which is simply obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. This is not a time to entrench ourselves in what we think we know about ourselves or about this or that. This is a time to remember that the intensity of the devil's assault indicates that his time is getting short and the allied forces will be marching in the streets before we know it. We're on the cusp of a great victory. That's what the dream said that I shared with you last week. Hold on. Sure, we've suffered some terrible defeats, and those defeats nothing can ever take from us. Some have died this past week. One of those who died, it was a great victory, and the other was a sorrowful defeat. But even in that defeat, God has a victory planned. He wants to stretch out spaces in your heart for glory, for joy, for new faith, for new grace. Amen. What the devil intended for bad, Joseph told his brothers, God used for good. Amen. Nobody can deny that what came to Job was a full-on assault of the devil. But we can't either deny that every single blow turned out as a strategic loss for the king of terror. 